welcome everybody to the first of the Deep Benefits podcast. I'm very excited to be starting this out, a little nervous to be honest. Um, we value your brain space. We understand that that is expensive real estate. So hopefully we'll be providing value for the time that you spend with us and that we earn your, uh, your um, attention. Um, the Deep Benefits show is a show in which we are going to be examining the amazing history that we're privileged to be a part of. Um, we're traversing an, an inflection point uh, that is launching us from the modern area into the gig age. Um, so stick with us as we engage thought leaders, innovation, innovators, and domain specialists in an effort to bring clarity to a world moving at hyperspeed. The Deep Benefits podcast will focus on the new age drivers reshaping the world of employee benefits, health, wealth, and wellness. Um, so with that, welcome to our very first show. Thank you for uh, joining us. Um, again, we appreciate you spending this time. We hope to continue to earn your listening time by providing interesting, engaging, valuable discussion. So with that, I'm really, really pleased to introduce Tim Kane. He's the founder and CEO of MyHSA. He's our very first guest. Totally appreciate it, Tim. Um, it's almost appropriate, I think, that you are the first guest. Uh, thinking back, you know, you starting up my HSA in 2012, um, and um, you know, I was I was a keener from the beginning. Um, so I, I really appreciate I appreciate having you on board. I, I know that it's it's time for you. It's, it takes away from your day. Appreciate you giving me the time. But so I want to talk a little bit about that about that experience that you had from. From the beginning, I mean, you started, from what I recall, you bought an agency that owned a little, maybe a Lotus spreadsheet or an Excel spreadsheet, maybe an access database, and they were handling health spending accounts for um, for some employers, for some of their clients. Um, you acquired that and saw value in that, and you know, you took that and put that onto the web, which is was, I think, a masterful move in terms of the flexibility, the capability that it brings, which we can talk about in a moment. And to what I understand today is a very, very successful business. I believe that you've got advisors on the system now somewhere in the order of two and a half, maybe 3,000 advisors. Is that? That's yeah, a little over that. Actually, we've just surpassed 3,000 and actually well over 3,000. We're onboarding at about 50 a month advisors coming onto the MyHSA platform. So uh, outstanding. I mean, it's, it's, it's success that just builds, it's breeding more and more success. And employers, yeah. how many employers on the plan? On uh, it's uh, over 11,000. And, yeah. and, and and that covers what? And so you've got you've got in the platform you've got micro companies, single you know self employed, yeah. and you've well, got businesses. I was I was going to correct correct you on a couple of things, David. Go for it. We started uh, we started a high risk practice in 2012. Um, what happened and how we got into the HSA business? It wasn't something that I saw value. In fact, quite the opposite. Not a tech guy at all. I I you know I was the last guy to have a BlackBerry, and I think I flipped back and forth between my iPhone and BlackBerry. Go, we're going, guys, why can't we just have BlackBerry? So I was definitely not tech-focused. But what happened was I had a, a benefits brokerage or a benefits guy that used to drop me off a bottle of scotch, and that was his presentation every year. So I got a little tired of that, so decided I wanted to buy a benefits brokerage. Just to, And my background was I owned a property and casualty insurance brokerage and bought this benefits company and quickly figured out what an HSA was. He had a a Microsoft Access database that his feeling was that the third-party administrators just didn't treat his clients fairly. There's a lot of costs involved with it, and he should be doing it. So we bought it, or built it, and then I bought it. 
And we had to quickly find a solution for it because it was an administrative nightmare. It was just lots of paper. Everything that insurance brokers hated about it, we hated like you couldn't believe, but we just bought it. We had to do something with it. So I ended up looking for solutions, couldn't figure out anything better out there. So I ended up just building one. We thought, oh, you know, we're not software guys. Well, let's just build some software. So we built it in 30 days. That was in 2012, rolled it out in to our uh, to our, our existing block and it was a nightmare. It didn't work very well. It was built in 30 days, but we had advisors coming to us going, hey guys, we've seen what you're doing. Can we use it? And we said, we didn't really build it for you. You're a competitor, but hey, why not? So we let on a couple of pilot brokers and then it's funny with technology, you start looking at all the cool things that you can do in technology. And just to be clear, back when we first started my HSA, it wasn't our entrance into technology. It was like a couple of tryhards trying to get into technology, built it on somebody else's software, but you definitely fall in love with it. So in 2013, I ended up selling my brokerage, both my PNC and my benefits and going forward with my HSA. And just to, to further that, we didn't really get going and you were one of the early adopters, but you were definitely one of the early sufferers as well as we tried to get our our shit together. I'm sorry. No, uh, hold on. Before you rush off there, just to put it out there, I have yeah. to say that, you know, what with perception from your end might have been suffering. And I want to get back to a couple of things you just said, but um, from your perspective, might have been suffering. I have to tell you that just observing from a distance as a user, um, people that were committed to making sure that their um, bugs, let's just call them bugs, were sorted out and ironed out. I mean, two people that work 35 hours out of every 24 um, and got things done so that the any pain that we were experiencing was absolutely minimized. So I can't imagine what it was like on the inside for you guys, but I have to say that one of the things that really made me a, like a lifer you know, is, the, is, is the, the, the type of support, the commitment to the, to the offering, the service, the advisors, the whole thing. Is outstanding. So just paying this from our end, but carry on. Sorry. Yeah. And people always ask us about that. And to, to be clear on that, again, I'm not a technology guy. We, we we're a service company and the service is something my actually my wife calls it a, a character flaw is that I'm so focused on service and that we've been able to build a culture with the employees that we brought in saying, hey, you know what? We got a great technology, but service is foremost. And to be honest with you, David, with the bugs, as you call them, I call them a royal nightmare mm. that we experienced in the rebuild of our software was launched in January 1st of, or sorry, April 1st of 2016. We would not be alive and we would not be here unless we focused on that service. It's just been ingrained us from the start. It's so, 7365. So that actually brings me to, it was a question I wanted to ask you. What was that transition? I mean, from being, you know, I, I tried it once back in the day. It was an interesting experience. But moving from a business, you know, insurance sales, insurance technician, et cetera, from that mindset into actually running a technology company, what does that transition look like? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you work that? Because if you think about it, I'm a brick and mortar guy. That's where my basis was. When I sold my brokerage, one of the first thing I did is I bought this office right here. Just I felt like I had to have something. But I went from files. I went from physical things that I owned to everything that I owned that was on this laptop. And at that point in time, it wasn't even mine. It was just somebody else's that I built it off of. So it's a real, it's a real mind then to try and think that this is how a business operates, but now that throw that all out the window and this is all you got. And it's weird because I always were, I was worried and I was very, very seriously worried that one day I'd open my computer and I'll all be gone. And it just never happened. And Steve was more, Steve and my partner, he's, 
he's more of the guy that's lost. Well, it's too far. It's not going to be gone. But it was just that reality. It's tough to get your mind around. Right. There's two things that you can't, it's tough to get around, your mind around when you sell a business, especially a brick and mortar. You're not going to get a paycheck again, which people don't feel sorry for you because you sold your business. And also, too, you don't have that physical premise. You don't have those employees and things of that nature. How do you get your trusting? Like you, you're going to rely on if you're going to design a system like yours, and I'm going to assume nothing, you know, I, but what I know about you know, just at the, the level of programming a database would be dangerous, but, you know, your relationships are one too many, and then XML and HTML and blah, 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 all of this th- these things that are way beyond um, my scope of comprehension. I mean, and it's always dangerous when people, I find, when people tend to think that, you know, they understand something because they you know, took an Excel spreadsheet maybe and created some interesting formulas to get interesting results. It's not the same thing when you're building a tech company and you're now dealing with maybe a head of IT or something like that. How did you bridge that gap in terms of communication with that person to understanding um, and being confident that they understood what you're trying to do and that their designs were um, appropriate to what was being accomplished? Well, the the first, uh, we're sitting in this office, so we could sh- I could show you around, but it was, it's a little house in Martaloop. And the first part of our business from 2013 to 2016, April 1st of 2016, was Steve and I with our desk pushed together, listening to John Mayer, shout out to John Mayer, all day yelling at our outsourced tech people going, why doesn't it operate it like this? And I remember some of the things they said is, well, you don't want to build an app for Android because everybody's going to use Apple and things of that nature. And Steve and I were like, not being technology people, we were very focused on the consumer and the people that were using it. So if you wanted it to work on Chrome, if you wanted to work on Edge, we were like, make it work on Edge, where I think the traditional technology standpoint is just make it work on the browser that everybody uses. You don't fully feel comfortable until, I believe this has to happen with all technology companies. As they go up, 2013, we built the business on somebody else's software. We got to 2014, it was going up, it was going up, it was going up. And then you can literally see it start to go down and we're like, oh shit, we better start rebuilding. So we rebuilt it in 2015, launched it in 2016, thought that the world was great. It was a nightmare. It was worse than ever because we built a worse software. It was our own, but it was the worst software on, and it was had clients on there. So it was about to implode. But what we got out of that is we tried to get some VC money, tried to get people to buy us, tried to do anything to survive this storm. We were literally out of money. We were, couldn't walk around Calgary without getting somebody telling us, giving us the finger or whatever. They hated us. But what it was, and I remember a conversation with you because I remember I drove out of my garage and I'm like, how's things going? And you called me or you, you said, don't you ever just want to say, fuck it. You just <laughs> run away. And I did. I wanted to run away and I wanted to start crying. It's it was horrible, but from that chaos came the supportive advisors and what we were doing. We knew that the model was supported, and we also had the support of the venture capitalists. They weren't going to give us money because they didn't believe in us. They thought we were going to be dead in six months. There was actually bets on that. But what they said is they said, hey, guys, you've got to start thinking like the technology company. Bring in Mark, our, our, our partner, Mark, that we brought in. Get a CTO. You got all the nuts and bolts of it, but you don't have the back end and you need the back end support. So we did it thinking, oh, we'll just check the boxes and, and then they'll give us money. But it actually changed our focus. It changed our life. What they say, what the VCs are incredibly helpful, especially a few that we still talk to. They will tell you how to build a business and try to help. I find the tech communities that way that 
if you're dying, they'll save, they'll give you the nuts to save you. And, uh, and that's really what happened to us. So we were only comfortable when it was our own, when I could look at Mark rather than picking up the phone and, and yelling at somebody, you know, overseas or in Edmonton, it really didn't matter. It's just, it has to be that person with the ingrained culture that we built within my HSA. Got it. Look, um, a big part of, of what we're trying to do, I think with this podcast is to, you know, help people we're going through this as i said in the introduction this massive um inflection point a long really impactful probably it could be on a the, the most significant inflection point in in the civilization of man maybe in terms of the way technology is taking us from this modern era into the gig era i mean with you know everything we talk about and without being pejorative about it but you know elon musk with this and then the next thing and Jeff Bezos doing what he does with, but we don't even have to talk about those things. It's, it's people with smaller companies, successful companies like my HSA that are leveraging technology to do, to do some really, really interesting things and solve problems. And really what I think we want to try and do with the benefits is help people to see um, what the changes are that are actually happening instead of all this noise and this overwhelming amount of, you know, clutter tech words we hear about gig economy and blockchain and AI and therapeutic and et cetera, et cetera, but help to really see what are the themes that are, are meaningful. Um, we want to try and figure out how those impact each of us and see how we can navigate our way as individuals um, to take advantage of these things now so that we're kind of not asleep, you know, in the wagon while it goes from point A to point B and then leave it to the next generation to take advantage of it. There's a whole bunch of us going through this. And I mean, when I say generation, I don't mean just, you know, the Gen Xers or the boomers. I'm talking about us as, a, as those of us walking the planet right now from young people adopting to older people that are struggling to adopt and learn how to adopt. All of us can actually take advantage of this change, maybe in different ways because of our age, et cetera. But we, um, we can all take advantage of it. I think our objective is to try and help people um, make sense of that and see where they can jump on board and um, understand something as it relates to them in a de-risked kind of a way um, and then and then move forward. So I guess to start with on that, to really get into the meat of my HSA, I, it seems to me you solve problems for three actors in our industry, in the benefits industry. Those would be the advisor, clearly, the employer, and employees or plan members, users of these things who really at the end of the day are the people that we're driving the solution for. They're the ones that actually reap the real practical benefits on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so let's start with the advisors. Um, what, what problems do you think that they were facing that you solved for them? Well, I think the advisors really didn't have any problems that we solved for them. I think the consumer drove the problems into the advisor's mind. There's, if you talk to any advisor, I, and I'll still say this, and I say this with all due respect, Advisors don't want us to exist. Advisors do want to sell insurance. That's where they get paid the big bucks. That's where the, they, they, they're comfortable doing that. So a mind shift, there's a reason why we saw the value in the model and the fact that you, I always found it weird that you go buy in your insurance, you go to your insurance advisor. If you want a spending account, you go to some sort of third-party administrator. It was always bizarre to me. And so bringing that in-house and being able to the advisor to sell both of them to serve what the client wants but not take away from their insurance. Because a lot of these models that are out there, the spending accounts, they're always do this or that. 
you either buy insurance or you do a spending account. We've never been like that. We've only sold for insurance advisors, MGAs and PPAs saying, keep what you have. We believe insurance is important, but just carve out the things that from a guy that knows nothing about benefits. And I still don't know nothing about benefits. Probably know more than the, more, enough to be dangerous, but I believe that the, the vision, the, the dental, the extended health, they're not insurance. They're just trading dollars with the insurance company and cash flowing the way you're paying claims. So really, those are transactional. Those are transactional benefits. They're trivial. I mean, we, we right. refer to them as transactional benefits. It's not an insurable event. I mean, a person should insure for things that are financially catastrophic for them or destructive. Exactly. So, uh, you know, your vision care claim, I mean, even an orthodontic claim of five, six grand over a three-year period is not financially destructive for most of us. I don't want to be trivial about people who are you know, financially strapped. I mean, it's a hardship, but it's not going to destroy them. Whereas, say, a, you know, an out-of-country travel claim for $500,000 because someone, God forbid, had a car accident and ended up in that that's financially destructive that you would insure for. But this other stuff is transactional that you're talking about, right? And that's insurance. I came to the basis of property and casualty. You couldn't go buy car insurance and then buy maintenance insurance for going to the mechanic or getting oil changes. That's essentially what you're doing in the benefits industry is buying the catastrophic and then you're buying the maintenance insurance. So we believe that the maintenance insurance should be self-insured and then take the insurance, put it to the catastrophic levels. And that's really taking it back to the basis of what insurance is. So so, um, you, you you were solving the advisor's problems with regard to providing them with a a new service or product offering for their customers um, that was meaningful so that they could maybe create a fancy, service their customers in a more holistic way than maybe just having a single deliverable of the old traditional, you know, health and dental plans. Um, were, were there any other aspects of what MyHSA does that have provided advisors with, um, with solutions for business issues that they might have had before, at least from your perspective. Totally. Anybody, I don't have to be silent about this. This industry is old and there's, real, there's really no technology in there. Most advisors still to this day don't even have a website. And so what we've done, one of the greatest stories that I tell constantly was have an advisor. He's over 70. I can't remember. I think he's 74, but he's, he's got a group on the MyHSA system that the average age of the group is 23. So think about it, a 70-year-old person servicing a 23-year-old group. It's unbelievable. And I think that's what we've been able to do is just implement a little bit of easy technology to help them take it online and just get them a sniff of this is where the world's going and this is why it's so easy. Fantastic. So it's actually providing the technology solution, but at the same time, it seems to us, I mean, we find in our business dealing with advisors across the country as well, that, um, that you know, you've got this big disparity now. Let's say some people will say there's five generations in the workforce. So you could actually have a group benefits plan that's trying to deal with the needs of five different generations. You know, the millennial uh, hyper-successful athlete or whatever it might be, who's got certain needs for health and wellness benefits as opposed to a you know, middle-aged couple, maybe you know, mid-30s couple, two young kids at home, middle-aged couple, university kids at home, empty nesters as opposed to even older people in their retirement years, semi-retirement years still working. And all you need a benefit plan taking care of all of that would seem to me as well that an HSA type solution would, um, would help that 70-year-old as well not only relate in terms of a technology solution, but in terms of um, providing benefits 
to millennials that they would need and, and relate to as a where he he or she may not their needs may be completely different right absolutely and their needs are it's interesting because of the pusher the disruptors that have come into this industry the the disruptors have really kind of pushed the the thought of we need insurance we need insurance we, but our insurance is not typically what insurance was back in the past they want to have yoga as benefits they want to have all these things they're not looking think of the catastrophic they're not thinking of what happens if I get cancer. They're just thinking of what can I spend this year. And so right. to be able to balance the two of them by a spending account and insurance is really what we're trying to do. So then let's move on. I mean, for, for employers, um, what is it? What what were the issues that they were facing and why? Because, again, you guys had radical adoption. I mean, you went from, I would say, pretty much a standing start, even though there was a small book localized in Calgary, I would assume localized to Calgary, no. Um, and you ramped that pretty quickly. I mean, um, I know that there were some adopters that were strong, but you had to be solving a problem for for employers um, in order to get that kind of traction. Otherwise, it just wouldn't have worked, right? So, I, I don't know about that, David. I mean, I believe that, first of all, our traction was never in Calgary. Calgary is probably one of the last markets that adopted us. Uh-huh. Just I think I was from the industry. Maybe people thought I was going to get to the benefits industry. I don't know. They just didn't trust the model because another thing about what we do is that usually if you go to a spending account provider, they're going to direct your client. They're also selling through you. We only sell through you. That's the differentiation in us. So that was gave us adoption. But if you just gave the opportunity for a person in merit, there's no way our scale, our scale has been great, but it has, it's been a bootstrap scale. It hasn't been enormous. It's been mm-hmm. get rich slow, which I believe this model really under, misunderstood the VC model is that benefits don't happen fast regardless of what you're trying to do. But I think giving the technology and the tools to an advisor in the Maritimes to be able to sell it to his 10 friends or in the Yukon for him to be able to sell his 10 friends and doing it easy and online, that's really where we got our scale from. It fair, happened. Fair. But so, fair enough. But again, that's solving the advisor and, and reaching the advisor, your distribution. How about but the, the, the need for employers? Um, again, in fact, maybe we should step back from that and look at that. I mean, your the, the, the book of business, the HSA in, in a certain world within the insurance agent, the insurance agent market space has been very much a self-employed, maybe one employee type solution, right? You know, a professional yeah. Um, looking to set up a private health services plan, they've come to a MyHSA for a solution. But there's a whole different offering as well, which is small and micro companies, even up to much much larger companies who either want to add a, an additional HSA or maybe resolve other problems. So, do you see what is the what is it that you saw that you solved? Was it that professional market space, um, and has that migrated over to larger employers? Um, and, and what are the issues that you're solving for each of these segments? Totally. So the, what we're issue, I'll, I'll just tell you, I'll start with a story. We implemented what we call my WSA, which is my wellness spending account. And Steve kicked and screamed because we actually had a home builder that was in Calgary that wanted to offer bicycles to their employees. And Steve went in there and said, why would you pay us an admin fee to put a bicycle expense account through your, your organization? And then one day we were in the airport. I don't think it was just in the airport. And somebody was talking about, hey, going, you know what? This is so cool. Like my employer pays for my gym memberships. 
the, this is part of my benefits. And when I'm going, this is exactly what you're talking about. Employees don't really see the differentiation between dental or a taxable benefit for their bicycle. They want them both. And so in answer to your question, we built the business with HSAs, started one to 10 person employers. That's kind of our sweet spot. But with the implementation of my WSA, my flex plan, my flex plan is just a bucket where the employer can be able to decide where they want to spend it. We're now, our sweet spot is kind of 50 to 250 employees. We've got thousand person organizations quickly scaling up because although CRA and spending accounts were made for small businesses, that's where they came from. They're allowable by any business as a top up to an insured plan or just to complement it. If you want to just offer some taxable benefits. So there's really no sweet spot that we have right now with respect to businesses. There any business can have an HSA and every, every business should have some sort of a spending account. And like do you, you probably do. Uh, do you find that a significant number of employers say above, let's say, you know, even say three, two, three micro up to 20 lives or even beyond are starting to pull back from traditional extended health and dental benefits and maybe pull those back, strip them right out um, to reduce insurance premium on the program and replace that with health spending accounts? Yeah, no question they have. A good example of that would be COVID because I think the insurance companies did a terrible job with respect to COVID because when COVID was happening, there was premiums that were being collected for the, for the health, dental, and vision that they couldn't get. They're just Everything was shut down. And so the insurance companies of that portion, they acted like COVID didn't exist. That means a change in still charging the premiums and after screaming at them, they said, okay, we'll give you some back. But on the renewals, we're finding that the insurance companies, again, are acting like COVID didn't happen. So they're increasing inflation, they're increasing like losses have happened where they didn't. So the adoption of spending accounts is becoming, it's crazy. Like our December has been absolutely nuts. Because people pay for what they use. That's exactly. it. There's no actual adjustments at the end of the year, no claims risk in that regard. I know what my account is. And I guess employees get flexibility out of how they can spend the money as well. So, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you a different question. Um, when when you get to the expenses, um, you know, the claim is the claim. Yeah. So if a person spends one hundred and fifty dollars on a pair of glasses or whatever on a given item through an insured program, um, they'd spend that same one hundred and fifty through a MyHSA or a health, a health spending account. So that cost is the same regardless of the platform I'm using. So there's now the other costs. I guess we could call them frictional costs. costs. Um, adjudication fees, the insurance, insurance company fees, etc. cetera. Um, wh- how, would you, how would you evaluate or consider the relative expense or expensiveness of an insurance solution in that in those terms versus a health spending account solution. It's interesting because insurance companies, and I, again, I'll, I'll, I'll rely on you and your, what, what point does an insurance company for, if you had a thousand dollars of premium and then what dollar value do insurance companies start deciding that they're not making money of the thousand dollars of premium? Right. 
So let's say, let's say the target break even for them or their inverse expense ratio is 25%. Let's say it's 75%. So that it's 75%. So right there, if you think about it, you're paying a 25% admin fee. With us, you're paying a, you know, whatever your advisor charged, but say a 10% admin fee. So you're already saying, saving 15% of the cost. Right. It's just that the insurance companies to facilitate those claims are a heck of a lot more expensive than we are. Right. Just they're an insurance company. So, so considering that, I mean, when you said advisor would charge out, let's say 10%, meaning the advisor's got to take a piece of that 10%. Oftentimes, in just an insurance contract, you'd probably have a 10% commission for the advisor. But clearly, this 10% is not for the advisor. There's got to be a breakdown of that. There's you know, distribution costs, et cetera. So some of that is being held by my HSA. Some of that's transactional fee that you guys need to cover your expenses and make a profit. And the advisor's got their piece for, for their distribution, sales, service, and support to the client. Fair enough. So um, there's certainly efficiency coming there. But the question for me is to try and understand the relative value of a my HSA deliverable against what clearly seems to be quite a nominal fee. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to imagine it would cap out at 5%, and probably it's lower than that even. Um, understanding the model, because I, I would think an, an advisor is probably going to be wanting to take around five, somewhere in that order. Maybe some will take a little less, maybe some will take a little more. But if it was five on 10, you would be left with 5% to pay for all, all kinds of things, for wholesale distribution, et cetera. You know, it, describe the cost that you face uh, in terms of validation for the effectiveness of, of, of your pricing model. Well, the, the, to, to our credit, our pricing model was a little bit out of the air when we first started. It has never changed, not since the start. We've, uh, we've remained consistent. So whether that's a magical number or whether that was just fluke, I'm not sure what that is. But we've never had a price per employee per month. We've never had to add any of the minimum fees. It's been that straight percentage. And in that, we can justify our costs and we basically scale. Technology is cool because it's all front end. As you start to build it and start to evolve it, you can do more and more and more with the exact same resources. So I think that it was a little shy to begin with. Actually, advisors used to come to us say, charge more because we want you to be in business. Now they're coming and saying, you know, charge less because we want you to, we want to make more money off. But I think that, uh, I, I think that's, that's really the model is we've been able to scale with what we have, still using humans for adjudication. And the rationale behind that is we're taking the, the adjudication process and making it a heck of a lot simpler. But don't kid yourself, people still love that human involved to make sure that claims are going through. And people talk about fraud. Humans are the best prevention against fraud. Because mm -hmm. the engines, the AI is not there yet. And you, well, I want to get to that. I want to get to AI and, and, and see, I'm not sure, I wasn't sure if we would go there or not today. But I think, I think it's clearly a very compelling compelling aspect of where we could go, where you could go. But but I just want, I want to stick with the efficiency here. So really, it's a long game. You're saying the technology is very much front-end loaded in terms of the development. Well, clearly, there's a continuous development cycle because technology keeps improving and you keep having new ideas and new cool things to solve. Um, but it's a long game. And once you build it, then a very small amount on you know massive amounts of customers putting business through gives you a business that, that makes sense. So there's an efficiency that's come through technology, say since 2000, 2010, certainly, even, albeit there was technology before, but certainly it seems to have become so 
programming tools, technology enhancements have become so ubiquitous and so simple, relatively speaking, simple to use. You can have people literally who are almost not technology people starting technology businesses, um, leveraging a ton of um, IP that's gone into all the tools that are now now available to us and build businesses that create real efficiency. So it would seem to me that part of um, your advantage is a struggle that the legacy insurance companies um, have. I mean, they've got, they've got legacy systems that are expensive to maintain. They've got um, business models that are people intensive. And so they've got a long way to go. That's not to negate their value in the system. These people are good people. I mean, the people we work with on the insurance end are typically really skilled, good people. They understand that they're providing a solution. They certainly are as much as oftentimes people, I think, don't uh, don't appreciate it. Most insurance people that I know at the insurance company end really are focused on their customer and the customer experience, etc. Um, but they, they have challenges with technology. So um, the efficiency is, is certainly because, you know, if it was to cap out at four, 5% or whatever it might be in terms of wholesale Develop, tech development, transactional costs, I've got to imagine you're paying some gateway to be transferring funds from employers to employee bank accounts to your bank accounts, etc. You know, there's all of the, and you're doing it so efficiently. Um, it's It certainly um, bodes well for the future in terms of the kinds of um, solutions that you guys will hopefully continue to be able to bring. Um, let's talk a little bit about about AI. Are you guys doing anything in that in that area? Are you starting to look at claims patterns and track them? Is there any efficiency you can see coming from that? Where are you at with it? Yeah, one hundred percent. We look at it all the time. The problem the problem that we see from first of all o OCR optical recognition is that optical recognition reading receipts, especially in the claims and the medical industry, there's no standardization of receipts. So the true, the true optical recognition technology of reading receipts, believe it or not, it's still faster for a human to look at them. They'll get there, but that's why we have them move there. The second problem is that a lot of the data, the all the big search engines, I mean, we always say you don't really have to build OCR, you don't have to build all these engines because it's going to be built by the big players and they're going to give it to you. A lot of the big problems that you have right now is that it's all down in the U.S. And if you're a Canadian where your data is going down to the U.S., I don't know if you get into the Patriot Act, but you won't be in business for very long. So I think that we've got our we've got that on our radar. There's no question about it. We look at it constantly. We're just not happy with the processes yet to do it. Um, from AI perspective, we've got a ton of data, like a ton of data. The insurance companies have a ton of data. They can't provide us that data, nor can we provide that data. And for AI to start working, that data is going to be amalgamated. So that's a bigger problem to solve. We've got some ideas with respect to that. We've actually got a blockchain white paper on claims management that would help that process. But you've got a bigger problem where the insurance companies have got old legacy systems. It's tough to share it. They don't want to share between them. And until there starts some sharing between the carriers, it's going to be a real, real tough road. I've heard this term with AI, the flywheel, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, just to push back a little here, is, is it not worth your while to start finding ways to start applying AI tools? And again, this is an area I know nothing about. I mean, I, I understand the a concept of AI um, and you know, what it can potentially do with information and data and et cetera. 
Um, but the, how those tools are applied and, and implemented, I, I, I really don't understand that. So forgive me if I'm asking a question that's, you know, totally ridiculous. But it's not, they're not a way for you guys to start to um, apply AI tools that is starting to gather the data and starting to spin because there's this flywheel effect that the more data you throw in, the more energy it gets, the faster it spins and it decretes. And maybe you would have a first mover advantage by going there um, and uh, and being the first guys on the block to create that. I mean, I know that I listened to a fascinating interview recently with Daniel Schreiber from Lemonade. I don't know if you've seen this interview, but terrific yeah. interview. And he was talking about this exact thing, you know, using that, um, that flywheel to get spinning. And once it spins, it just starts to create exponential value as, as it just gets bigger and bigger. It, it, it is. And we, we definitely do, David, but we do it at our own resources because to truly start using the AI, we're going to have to pass your data to somebody else to be able to uh -huh. put it wheel. And again, that's a lot of the problem right now is sharing of the data, especially with the data that we have. So we, we 1000%, we've got things in the background that are working. They're just going to be slower until there's actually a data exchange that can happen. And it's, it's obviously going to have to be aggregate data, not personalized data, yeah, I would the, imagine, right? The weird thing about technology is you think that you can take all your data and put it into the flywheel, but it actually, it's, it's not like that. It has to go forward. You can't really go back and be able to have that successful information transfer. You mentioned blockchain. Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, <laughs> You know, it's, it's, we've been kind of quiet on blockchain for the last couple of years simply because the cryptocurrency world seemed to dip and it lost its, it lost its, uh, its glimmer for a little while. And being that cryptocurrency is probably the most well-known uh, blockchain application, certainly the most, uh, the sexiest one that makes most of the news. But there's a lot of blockchain application, supply, uh, what do you call it, supply chain management, etc. And I did read as well an article the, uh, yesterday, I think, actually from Unigri, um, with regard to the application of blockchain and smart contracts uh, in the insurance industry. So you're saying you you have a white paper internally for my HSA, or is is an ex external document? Where are you guys going with it? Well, it's not an external document. What we did with blockchain is I love blockchain. I hate crypto. I do, self-admittedly. I think it's stupid. Having said, I do own a lot of Bitcoin. I've liked Bitcoin, but I don't think that it's going to solve the problems that people think it's going to solve. It's not the future. The blockchain technology of sharing of data is huge, especially for smart contracts, especially for insurance. So what we have is a white paper that we spent a, a lot of money on trying to get it together that will potentially be able to use the blockchain technology to be able to stop fraud between carriers. The problem with it is, David, is again, it's collective. If it's one carrier that doesn't sign into it, it's a problem. And it's it's a business that I will 1000% be working on at some point in time. But to try and get the buy-in, you have to get everybody's buy-in because if you have one carrier that steps out of it, it's it blows the it's whole thing. Yeah. But, but isn't there just a, an efficiency just for you guys in terms of blo a blockchain application all the way, let's say, from, um, from storage of what's permissible, say, under the CRA guidelines for a, I mean, certainly on the wellness side, we don't forget about CRA on the wellness side, it would be a predefined list of employer allowable expenses on a smart contract. Um, the CRA ones might need more human interaction to some degree, yeah. but if you had that built into a smart contract, someone presents 
at the time of claim, it adjudicates, it deals with everything and, and triggers the, the, the financial uh, transaction right there. Is that not a realistic world that I'm talking, talking it, to? It is. It's just what's the sense of having blockchain? Blockchain is sharing of data between multiple providers. I mean, that's really what it is. Well, isn't it also to secure the data as well and to to have kind of this, this um, decentralized ledger that's storing transactions in a way that are recoverable, they're not necessarily duplicable, um, that f- it minimizes fraud, I would, I would imagine. No. It does, but if it's for my HSA, blockchain doesn't make sense. Okay. Blockchain is sharing amongst others and having open access to it. If you just you might as well just have a separate instance of AWS to be able to have that information if it's for you, which is the problem because there's a lot of people that want to take blockchain and they want to implement it, but you have to look at is is there a, is there a trust issue? Do you, is the sharing of information to others? And if it's not, there's no sense of blockchain. So, so actually, so let's try clarify this so that listeners will actually. So, what do you see as an actual use case for blockchain in the MyHSA context, considering? The sharing of information. So Can you, you see a scenario? You go get a dental claim. By using this blockchain technology, we can figure out exactly whether you've used, whether you've claimed that dental claim, the exact dental claim from any carrier. And if it is, it's stopped, it can't go through. That's how you solve stop most of the fraud in the industry. So it's a fraud. So from your perspective, uh, blockchain solution for um, your part of the industry would certainly be a fraud detection um, consideration. But that's really what fraud is in the benefits industry. Mm-hmm. You know, fraud okay. being carriers. There's well, a lot of making up receipts, but duplicate of between carriers and duplicate claims is the problem. Uh-huh. And you could see that with, with pharmacy as well in terms of people maybe duplicating prescriptions. You know, there's that kind of thing as well that goes on. I know that the pharmacy management companies are big on that, trying to ensure that people you know, never don't have overlapping prescriptions of clients, et cetera. So I'm assuming, again, you could just cross it. Cross it yeah, exactly. But if you have it through shoppers, they probably have that. If you go to Joe's convenience store down the street and he's got a, he's got a pharmacy in there, he doesn't have that information. It's not the same information. So let's, let's, go, let's go back a little. So if, if I was to ask you, um, and I'll throw this question out. It's like a fun question. But how – Three ways that you guys, maybe not three ways, how do you make advisors' lives easier? How do you make an employer's life easier? And how do you make a, a, a plan member's life easier? Well, plan member, and I'll speak to the plan member because I believe a big problem in the benefits industry and technology and insurance, In I, I don't know much about the technology and other parts of insurance I should speak about, but there's so much focus on the plan admin in this industry that the consumer, the person that's actually making the claim is almost lost. And so from our perspective, we're making it extremely easy for the consumer. We have our My Marketplace idea where the employer can, employee can buy their own benefits. We focus so much on that employee that in essence, we make it better for the administrator because the administrator, they have employees. If you go to employees, our, our business is incredibly sticky. Employees love the MyHSA platform. And the rationale between that is that they go to any other provider, there's nothing like it. There's nothing that focuses so much on the employee from an employer perspective. So that goes to the plan administrator. Administrator, we just make the report simple. That's all they need. 
And uh, from an advisor standpoint, it's easy to sell because a lot of the times if you go in and you show it to an employee, they love it, they push everybody onto it. So it's really by focusing on the employee, which I believe is forgotten in this industry, we're able to further the rest of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, absolutely. That my marketplace, I'm not sure if you're comfortable putting this out there, but my marketplace of your your block of business, how much, how, how many of your customers have actually adopted the my marketplace solution? Um, not very many, which is weird. Everybody loves the concept, but trying to put it on there. And I think that the curation of what's under my marketplace, it, you might as well have it. I mean, if you're, you're an employee, it's super simple. On your app, you can go in, you can buy pet insurance, you can buy, you know, travel catastrophic, you can buy whatever you want from an employer perspective, build your own benefits plan. Why wouldn't everybody own it? But to a little bit of our discredit, maybe our credit, is that we allow the advisors to push what's on the platform. And so not very many advisors have pushed it. The ones that have started it have just put it on everybody's platform. And so we're... we're Okay, so let's start, let's start with that. So you get feedback. Those that have adopted my marketplace, the feedback that you get from that is what? They love it. They, they love it. Yeah. And so what's happening there, just so that I'm clear as well, the employer is funding an account, either a my wellness account or a my HSA account, and then you bolted on this marketplace. Effectively, is as the term goes, that's populated with various offerings an employee can now dip into their account that the employer is sponsoring, go and buy something from this, and it's all billed through the account. So it's almost the employer is funding an account and giving the employees access to outside expenses like vision care, whatever you want to go buy over there. But it, additionally, there's programs that are made available through my HSA for additional insurance and other type uh, programs. You got it. Yeah. That's how it works. And so, okay, I, can, I mean, you can see it's really a flex plan on... Uh, it's a, it's a really simplified flex, flex plan, but providing a comprehensive suite of, of offerings. It's, it is compelling, which, which makes you then wonder, well, well, what is the roadblock? And you kind of said, well, to your credit, you've given it to the advisors to sell, um, but you know, advisors are comfortable doing what we've been doing for many, many years and learning new tricks is not always the easiest thing to do and changing your processes to implement those new tricks can be equally difficult or daunting. So it really comes down to a communications issue, right? Yeah. About how to develop, how to educate, et cetera. We're okay with that because when we started selling flex plans, if you look at probably, I, I bet you any account that's over 50 is moving to a flex account this year. And so the flex has been available for years and years and years, but now there's that adoption. So I think that it's more the industry moving to where it needs to go. Down in the US, building your own benefits is really what happens. Right. So I think the push to start happening in Canada and marketplace has been bastardized by a lot of providers by offering every provider in the world under this marketplace. And there's just paid presentations to be under there. We don't operate like that. We actually have, we add marketplace products that are add value to the benefits program. Or so, and, and you vet those and you vet those individual providers to to see that the, the, the credibility of the offering as well so you don't want to over you say what I understand you're saying is you don't want to flood you don't want to flood the um, the offering with too many things that it becomes confusing but what you want do want to offer is precise yeah, well, and of value 100% of our marketplace products have come through our advisors that have vetted us vetted them and put uh-huh. them 
And you can either do it inside your own domain, so those advisors can put their own products in, or use us or a combination of both. Mm -hmm. So don't think that it has to be offered to everybody. If you've got some secret sauce, you can put it on our platform. Amazing. So, um, and okay, well, I, I, I know that a couple of these things are critical illness insurance available. There's diet management programs, things like that, right? Yeah, yeah. We're looking at, you know, DNA storage. We're looking at looking at some cool things. But the problem with them is that they're, if they're not going to sell, we don't want to waste anybody's time on them. So you know what? We're joined to a close, Chris. Um, sorry, Tim. Tim, we're joined to a close. But let's just let's just um, let's wrap it up. Where do you think the market is going? What do you think the next three to five years looks like in the group insurance market space? I'm extremely bullish on our model. I believe that the consumer-driven marketplace, my marketplace, is what's going to drive benefits, and I think that it's going to move from a consumer, uh, an employer shift to the consumer saying, this is the benefits that I want and give the, the responsibility of the employer to be able to protect the employees from themselves because they don't know exactly what they need. So I believe that the advisor is going to be more of a component, maybe in a digital digital way, but I believe the consumer is what's going to drive the benefits market, where I think in the past it's been the insurance companies have driven the benefits market as what's available. So we do, we do the insurance companies define products. This is what's available. The employer was restricted to what they could give their employees by what was available in the typical insurance market. You're saying now we've got the flexibility to actually provide something that when you say the consumer, you talk about the plan member, the consumer of healthcare, they right. can now go push up to the employer and say, well, hold on, there are these things that are available that give me what I need. And it doesn't stop, you know, Anne or Tim or, um, Shelly or you know, Joe from getting what they want. It's You give us equal access to um, an aspect of our total rewards, which is a, an, an allocation into our, uh, into our HSA or our, our flexible spending account, let's call it. And we then get to use that the way we want to for our consumer needs for, 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 for healthcare. Well, and, and it's digital, and you can't discredit the digital process of it because what digital means in the benefits market, you look at any other the products that are going out there, they're trying to do boilerplate products. So they're actually trying to take it back to where it was, that this is what's offered, this is what 85% of the companies have, just buy this. Right. Where we're trying to say, forget that 85%, protect them in the back end, provide the catastrophic, and then allow the employees to be, be able to pick their benefits. And it's not for 200-person companies, it's for two-person companies, whoever. Tim, this has been extraordinary. I really appreciate the conversation. I think it's, it's been candid. No problem. I'm, you know, I'm, we'll, uh, we'll sign off now, um, but I'm looking forward to, tw to 2021 with you guys and wish you all the best you know, over the holidays now for you and your families as well. And 2021 should be you know, a rocket ship for all of us for next year coming out of COVID. Um, taking advantage of some of these tools that you guys are bringing to market and others are also delivering. So thanks so much. All the best. Happy holidays. You too. Ciao. Bye.